here we go. So today we're gonna just gonna go through 20 questions. We just kind of bang these questions out. I'm gonna, you'll see me kind of turn my head a little bit over here as I kind of read them off. And I'm gonna ask, I'll kind of moderate the time. We'll end this thing in one hour and we'll, you know, maybe, hopefully we'll get through all 20, maybe we won't, but here we go, ready? Question number one, 2021 M&A year in review. Why, why was there so much activity? Why has there been so much activity this year? Anyone want to give that a go? Obviously, having everyone rushing out the door to try to beat some potentially threatening uh, changes to tax policy is one of the biggest drivers, right? I think secondary to that, you've also got a, a lot of fatigue that we're hearing from our clients. Um, they're managing their businesses after going through, I guess, 24 months ago of surviving through COVID, having to manage through what felt like the end of the world at the time to reemerge and deal with a labor crisis and now some inflation as well. So I think the compounding of those two items has made for a really busy uh, second half of the year and really full year 2021. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. do you say, Derek? You agree? I agree with what he said. I think there's maybe a couple more things as well on top of that. You know, 2020 it was a little bit slower. The latter half of the year picked up quite a bit, obviously, over the first half of the year where nothing happened from March to pretty much mid-June last year. But, you know, there's, I think, $6 trillion, soon to be maybe $7.5 trillion printed in the last two years that have flooded the market. That doesn't hurt when everyone's balance sheets are double, triple, quadruple, or even more what they normally are. And a lot of a lot of franchisees have that this year. Not only have they had record EBITDA, but the PPP was a big boom. And you just got, got a ton of money in the market. And when you have a ton of, ton of money in the market, it's got to go somewhere. So that's kept prices strong and have, have kept sellers interested in, in selling their businesses without having to take a, you know, a COVID discount that last April, a lot of people thought people would be taking. You've still got cheap debt. Interest rates are rising a little bit right now, but still really cheap debt. And, and like Tony said, it's, it, it's tough to run your business right now. And the guys coming into the systems, you know, they're a little younger and have less gray hair maybe, but uh, it's, it's a stressful environment. And, and a lot of our clients are at that age where it's maybe a little bit less enjoyable than it was two years ago to run the business. And, and it's just kind of their time to, to, to hand it off to the next generation. Yeah, I think those are all the right reasons. I mean, you know, so we said taxes precipitating a big push and carry forward maybe of M&A activity. And we'll talk about 2022, which I think we're going to see more, you know, more of the same because the tax policy hasn't hasn't substantially changed. You know, there's been there's been a you know people are getting older. Heck, I'm getting older. I used to be the youngest guy around. Now I'm 47, <laughs> not the youngest anymore. So I mean, I you know we have you know a lot of franchisees are getting older, and the valuations are high, and the pressures are high, and not many of the second generation want to continue to be in the business. So you know, when you have valuations are high, and a lot of financial buyers are in the business, you just have the natural question of what's my legacy. I, we spend a lot of time talking about that with people these days. I think those are all good good answers. Um, number two question, you ready? Buyer and seller sentiment. What is going through their minds? So I, I guess this is a how are buyers and sellers feeling right now? You know, kind of as they as they look at the marketplace. I'll I'll start somewhat piggybacking on part of my answer to number one. You've got sellers who are a little fearful of potential tax increases. Prices are still strong. They're not feeling like they're taking a discount. In a lot of businesses, it's the opposite. EBITDA has increased and prices generally have increased. But you've also got the stress of trying to, to do a transaction and continue to run your business, which is pretty tough. Obviously, running your business is a full-time job. Then you add an M&A transaction to it. And we do our best to help as much as we possibly can. But obviously, we can't do 100% of the work in selling a business. So you've got that additional stress from, from current franchisees and, and the labor issues and commodity issues that everyone's aware of. And then you've got buyers who are, are somewhat equally stressed. They're, a lot of them are looking to put that money to work um, by the end of the year. A lot of deals trying to get done this year. You've got buyers saying, well, it's not looking like operations are getting any easier. What are we doing? Well, you're restaurant people. You want to own restaurants. And unless you have a, a very short-term outlook, you know, it's going to be all, all right in the long term. But I'd say uh, there's a lot of stress. Everybody's stressed. You've got deals taking a little longer. Lawyers, franchisors are taking longer. The survey people and the <laughs> third-party diligence are taking longer. There's just a, there's a lot of stress in the market, I'd say, is probably the, if I had to boil it into one word, that's probably it. Yeah, you yeah. say, I, I've heard people say that 
what's the what's the comment I've made? I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful to some people who may have not be in this situation, but I've, you know, many people are saying I've made more money this year than ever, but it's been so much harder than ever too. I think I understand that sentiment. There is a lot of stress, a lot of pressure with all the all the people supporting these deals. Tony, you have a quick comment, and then we'll jump to to the next one. I think I think Derek hit it head on. I mean, uh, everyone seems to be high strung buying or selling for various reasons, but for good reasons, I suppose. We're just in a really weird dynamic where a lot of these franchisees have more sales than they can manage, but not enough people to fulfill them. So it's uh, it's a really weird dynamic with shortening hours and tight labor, all the while M&A is as strong as it's ever been. So a really interesting time for sure. And on the buy side, I'd say the sentiment is trying to get deals done as quickly as possible, especially with the speculation that interest rates are coming up here in the next uh, second half of the next year. Question came in here about SPACs within the industry, and there have been several SPACs that have been announced recently. We don't dabble too much in the SPAC industry, which, you know, basically raising public funds with, you know, putting it in a vehicle, special purpose asset vehicle, I believe it's called. Uh, tell me if that's wrong, but it's it's basically an empty bucket of money. You raise money uh, with a management team. You go get investors. It's publicly traded. And then they get a bucket of money that they raise and they go invest it in, in an, an asset of some kind or the, the or the stock of a company. Uh, we've seen several of those deals happening and happening at high valuations. Since we play primarily with franchisees of mid to large size and franchisors of smaller size, we, we I'm aware of several colleagues in the industry that have performed SPACs, but we have not aided in them as of yet. So I, I don't know that I have a good answer for that question other than SPACs are usually a sign of, this is my impression, of, a, of an exuberant market. People are, are, are investing in something that, that they don't, you know, they're investing in a management team with no assets. So, but, they, but they've been popular in the, last, in the last 12 months or so. Thank you for the question. Number three, what does M&A look like for franchising in 2022 and specifically in Q1? So I'll start off with that. And then let's just get one response here because I think we're a little behind. I guess I would say this, for 2022, was a couple of months ago, I was fearful that we were going to be in 2022 at the end of this year and say, oh my goodness, it's going to slow down to nothing, right? All this business has been pushed forward into 21 to get closed before the tax end, year end. But um, I mean, we have, uh, Unbridled has, you know, a couple hundred restaurants on the market in the, you know, in the last just week and a half. And we have like three or four other deals that were four other deals that we're about to put in the market in KFC, Sonic and Pizza Hut, I think. I think from from our standpoint, my my comment would be that I think it looks like 2022 is going to be just as busy as 2021, at least at least the first quarter, maybe the second quarter as well. I mean, we I guess if we get more tax changes in a negative way that we don't expect right now, doesn't look like it's you know that we're going to have uh, anything at the moment that's going to you know stop the M and A wave like really incredibly high capital gains tax rates. But and I think the the operating environment's gotten more difficult. I think people's EBITDA might or might not be having difficulty rolling over last year as we move into 2022, just because of, of, of the state of the world. And um, so I, I suspect you're going to see sellers kind of think, oh, gee, I missed my boat in 2021, but it's still going in 2022. And so I raised my hand and I'm going to do it. For that reason, I, I think we're going to see a, a, a big amount of business in 2022, especially in the first quarter or first half. And I believe as we trail into the second quarter of 2022, we're going to see once we get some sort of lending attachment here, we're going to see the casual diners and the fast casual companies start coming to the market. We're already getting phone calls and emails from franchisors of casual dining concepts, you know, inquiring about selling. So that's that's what I see, you know. So I, I think stay tuned. There's there's going to be plenty of liquidity and, and plenty of buyer and seller demand in 2022. Yeah, I, I, I gather you guys will agree with that. So let's jump to number four since we're. Do you want to say something, Tony? No. Yeah. No, I just give you a okay. thumbs up. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Um, how about this? You guys tackle this one. What brands will and won't be active in 2022? What do you think? If, if you've been following a lot of the transactions in some of these brands, uh, you'll see that there's some that took. A lot of transactions that were going to cure uh, next year or the following year kind of brought them all and compressed them into this this past year. I think Taco Bell is certainly one of them. I think to your point, Rick, I think we'll start seeing the reemergence of fast casual. So 
don't be shocked if you see more deals in Panera and other fast casuals have been sidelined a little bit through uh, through COVID. But I do think when we look out the the world of especially Taco Bell, I mean, gosh, they've transacted over almost a thousand locations, I guess, in 12 months. So it's hard to see that continuing going forward at that kind of scale, right? But I think fast casuals and the secondary segments that have been punished by COVID will definitely emerge with more activity, especially going the back half of next year. You just anything you want to add there, Derek? I'll just add, you know, I'm I've been saying this for almost a year now. I'm pretty bullish on casual dining, the national chains. And that doesn't mean go pay 10 times EBITDA for them, but I'm bullish that I think they'll do really well in the in the medium to to short to hopefully long term too. I guess I don't usually predict long term trends, but uh you've got sales that have bounced back to 2019 or better. A lot of brands better. You've got mom and pops that have unfortunately still had to shut down and people are replacing that experience, I think, with the, with the Applebee's, Chili's and and those brands. Um, you know, if we ever hit a recession or anything, you know, money starts getting tighter, people are going to replace that $100 outing on a Wednesday night with a $40 outing on a Wednesday night. That, that again, is not going to help those smaller mom and pops in town. So, I think you'll see more casual. Obviously, the price has to be right and make sense. And, and the lending's got to be there. We've talked to some lenders last week that are willing to lend on it within reason. You're not going to throw five and a half lease adjusted on it or anything like that. But I think you'll see kind of a reemergence of, of casual dining in the market. Do you think you'll see more people eating a Bourbon Street steak with an Oreo shake and some whipped cream on the top two? <laughs> About a 4,000 calorie meal. What is it? Uh, two straws, one check, girl, I got you. My kids sing that song and love it, man. You know, I asked the guys at Applebee's, I'm like, what's this done to your sales? And they're like, man, it's made a meaningful impact. But we had to get Oreo shakes in our stores nationally. We didn't have them. I was like, well, you better get them if you're going to be singing on the TV. That's funny, man. So I, I guess I would just add this. Part of what you saw in the Taco Bell space this year and in other large franchisees you know, the large franchisees are tax savvy and planning savvy and strategy savvy, and they throw lots of millions of dollars on onto legal and CPA and the, the legacy planning and all the things that all those things. And so those are the ones who are more likely to have made planning decisions, buy sell decisions during this year. The ones that are less likely to have done so are the smaller operators and the smaller franchisees who maybe aren't so planful and they're maybe maybe envision yourself you know, in a store with seven stores and then bouncing between stores and not having thought about it as clearly or as long. Those are likely the types of people that are going to be the sellers, I would say, initially in 2022, or the ones whose businesses have recovered that that hadn't recovered fully in 2021. So regardless, they weren't going to sell anyway. So that's that's maybe something to to mention. Okay, number five on the list was what is the year-end push looking like on our unbridled capital deals? Well, I know we've got two Taco Bell deals closing today and a big Sonic deal closing tomorrow. And then we have like six or seven others that are supposed to close before the end of the year. All this darn pressure is 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 in front of everybody. Uh, what would you say to that question? What's it looking like? You know, maybe paint a picture, you know, without talking about brands or specific scenarios of just kind of what what we're going through might be helpful to the crowd. Yeah, I think in, in a word, I would say hectic, right? I think we, we maybe touched on this in our last conversation, but all these third-party providers are all trying to field all of these inbound requests to get a deal done by year-end, right? So that touches on attorneys, lenders, third-party real estate diligence groups, quality of earnings providers, different advisors. So I mean, if you can imagine everyone's trying to chase the same puck and get something closed by year-end, and not to mention you've got holidays and personal time mixed in there that you always have. It makes for a pretty hectic environment to get things done. Uh, maybe I had more hair before I started the year, but it's definitely been pretty nutty. Um, Derek, I'm sure you would agree. It's probably one of the most hectic seasons we've seen. Yeah, I think so. But it, I mean, as, as far as I can tell, things always happen in these deals, but the, the clients that we kind of told we would expect to be able to close your deal in 2021, I think we're we're aiming and we should probably be able to hit that unless things happen, you know, unexpectedly throughout throughout the rest of the year. And then obviously the deals we're working on now are are not a 2021 closing guarantee at all. So but I think we're gonna be under the gun and get our deals done this year that we've told our clients we should be able to. So yeah, thanks for sharing. 
How about uh, what's happening to multiples? So what's happening to multiples? I suppose we had a period of, you know, maybe I'm sure most of us did, but we probably had a period of about 60 days, maybe a little bit more towards the, you know, kind of the first of August till maybe like now where we probably had a pause, right? People had 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 pretty much decided to sell in 2021. And, you know, if you didn't get it going by August 1st, it was going to be real difficult to do. So then you kind of had a, a drop off until we the tax legislation became more clear or the lack of tax legislation became more clear. And then now I think people are coming back online. So we're we're kind of feeling it out. We've got a couple of big assignments on the marketplace in the marketplace right now. But what do you guys think is happening to multiples right now? What's your viewpoint? I still think you, I know we're going to touch on this probably next, but I think the real driver of analyzing multiples is always looking at what is going on with EBITDA, right? And so what you still have is this weird dynamic where some of these businesses in 2019 or 2020 achieved kind of steady state EBITDA. I'm using air quotes because that's probably how most lenders will think about it. And then a lot of them had a massive bump going through COVID. So now the question is whether or not you're retaining that EBITDA, are you retaining it or losing it? And obviously, depending on which side of the coin you are, your multiples could vary drastically from what they were before. And so we've got some brands that have been up 20% pre-COVID now. And when you look at their multiples historically, yeah, it looks a little bit different. But what we're still seeing is that there's still an appetite on the buy side to fill in whatever hesitancy a lender may have to provide, let's say, less debt. But they're still the buyers are still willing to fill that gap and achieve the purchase price that's requested. So we haven't seen that dynamic change. And, you know, you do have kind of two camps. You have people who are still... Uh, quite conservative, right? And say, well, I can only lend to this amount and I can't reach that multiple. But we've we've found in our experience, and I think we're successful at this, is find, finding those groups that are willing to say, hey, I've, I've actually hoarded cash for this reason. I've obtained PPP or I've got dry powder from institutional or outside investors. And this is, we're willing to inject more equity into this capital structure to, to win the deal. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great point. I think it's a great point. When I think about multiples, I think about multiple, you know, the ultimate question is what is happening to valuations? And when I think about valuations, they're usually comprised, you know, just from a simple perspective of EBITDA and EBITDA multiple. Okay. There's other factors, obviously, but you have the profit in the business and then you have the multiple you apply it to, and then you come to a valuation. We look at EBITDA and we look at the EBITDA multiple and those those things are always in flux, more so now than ever in the history of this business. What is the EBITDA is maybe the more kind of salient question. Many brands with good performance and a lot of buyer demand are able to fetch a current multiple of EBITDA on a current EBITDA to get a current valuation. Some are not. This is just all about supply and demand. And so it's easy in this in this context, you know, it's 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 easy to confuse how the EBITDA multiple is changing, if at all, when the EBITDA is changing so much. I guess my broad comment would be that the EBITDA multiples are, are kind of roughly kind of roughly the same. It's really the it's really the EBITDA that's been changing a lot. There are some brands where the EBITDA multiple has actually come up a little bit. So for example, one brand might be like KFC is a brand, okay? The KFC brand over the course of maybe the last two or three years has had an improvement, a kind of a gradual improvement in EBITDA multiple, gradual improvement. I'd say the same thing has kind of happened for Pizza Hut. I would say, you know, Taco Bell has kind of come up a little bit. The EBITDA multiple for a group like Sonic is kind of hard to say because the EBITDA has come up so much. Maybe the multiple is up a little bit too. I mean, you know, there are there are brands where EBIT, where the where the EBITDA multiple is dropping. I, pr- I probably don't want to single anybody out, but if you think about and I won't do that, but if you think about a brand where the comp performance has been couple year comp performance has been bad, the relationship with the franchisor and the franchisee isn't good. There's a lot healthy, you know, you know, th- there are other factors. Maybe the management team has been there's been some shakeouts and things like that. Those types of brands. Have, have seen slight EBITDA drops because maybe there aren't as many buyers for those businesses. That's kind of how I'd say to answer that too. Let's skip down to number eight on the list, guys. So, okay, unbridled, Derek, I see you're back with us. Why don't you take this one? On unbridled capital deals, are we experiencing new surprises in due diligence? And how I'd like you to answer this question is this. 
assume everyone on this call is a is considering, I mean, I know it's not true, but considering to they never sold anything before and might be an interested seller one day. And they don't, they don't know. They think the buyer and seller shake hands and make a deal. What kind of what kind of new surprises are we seeing in our deals during due diligence? If there's anything that's really new this year that we didn't see before, I think a lot of buyers are are really pinpointing on labor. In a normal year, obviously you don't want to lose your people during a transaction. And this year, you really don't want to lose your people during a transaction because good luck getting more. So I think buyers are are heightened heightened on on retaining everyone they possibly can through a transaction. And it's common. I mean, sometimes there's attrition, but I'd say in a normal year, oftentimes there actually isn't a lot. But now you've got employees that know they can pretty much go anywhere because there are millions of jobs out there that people would be happy to fill. So I, I wouldn't say it's really a surprise, but it's a heightened focus on on the people part of the business and wanting to make sure that they retain, retain everybody. And then I'll just say it again, that the new surprises are just things coming up with heightened levels of stress. Deals are never easy. And when people get stressed and they get harder. So I wouldn't say that's necessarily a surprise, but uh, maybe that wasn't a great answer. Tony, anything from you? I would just say, you know, not an all, not, this isn't across the board by any means, but we have some of these brands that, you know, did experience a massive explosion in sales and price was maybe pegged at the top of that kind of bell curve. And in some of those cases where the sales are coming down and kind of stabilizing, there have been some uh, reconsiderations, right? Again, it's not across the board, but, you know, once you're in due diligence and you see uh, some changes in underlying performance that, that obviously results in some uh, price adjustments, but yeah, I, again, that's I wouldn't say it's necessarily maybe not not categorized as a big surprise. It's kind of the course of doing business, regardless of brand, regardless of timing. But having these weird COVID laps certainly doesn't help. Yeah, I would say this. I mean, you know, for those of you listening or watching, I, I guess my comment would be most of the deals that we're seeing now, and you know, I guess we've got well, I don't know, like twenty five deals or so going. Um, Almost all the deals are being bought by people, not all, but almost all of them are being bought by by buyers who are backed with institutional money of some kind, whether it's family office money or private equity money. Those seem to be the people who want to buy these assets during these COVID times. And the comment I would just make is that they have a pretty regular playbook, you know, a lot of them, which involves longer due diligence process, inspection of the assets, quality of earnings studies, Pretty, pretty professional and often difficult uh, legal representation. You know, all these things that kind of come alongside the transaction that most people might be unfamiliar with. I usually tell people this, especially clients that are thinking of hiring us. I'm like, back in the good old days when when you did deals on napkins, they were easy to close, sure, but but the price was probably forty percent less. <laughs> you know, if you want to get an you know, a market price that's really at an all-time record for this industry and buyers are willing to pay it, you got to expect it to be a difficult and time-consuming and, and laborious transaction. And that's just what it is. You know, people aren't going to be investing other people's money without without looking under every, uh, you know, every, every crevice, under every crevice. So that's, that's my comment. Um, I guess it's just by the nature of having more financial uh, buyers, uh, there's, there's more due diligence. There's just more due diligence than there ever has been. Every deal you know, even the smaller ones. So if you're a smaller franchisee who has 10 units, you might say, oh, I can sell it to the nearby neighbor. Well, the nearby neighbor is going to pay five times EBITDA for it, right? So you're probably not going to sell it to the nearby neighbor. You're going to sell it to somebody who has a big old family office attached to them. It's going to ask weird questions that you've never heard before, you know? Here we go. Number nine, timing from a deal start to completion. Any any comment on that and how it's changed? Maybe there's a, some comments about the franchisor here a little bit too. What do you guys think? A lot of franchisors, like everyone, have just backed up on deals, so they're they're just taking a little bit longer. It's but it's every step. It's not just franchisors taking a little longer. It's like Tony said on a couple of questions back. You've got the real estate diligence is trickling in, taking a long time. Anytime you have to deal with the local government. It's going to take a long time. Permitting is taking a little bit longer. Getting the licenses, the lenders are backed up. I mean, everybody is just is just, and there's not there's no one bottleneck in these deals. You know, lawyers are doing all sorts of deals, and and you know they there's only so much time in the day. So 
in Q3 and Q4 deals have taken a little bit longer, you know, simply because, because of all that. And it's just the nature of when you put a couple of years of M&A into two quarters, that's what's going to happen. I'd expect it to change come Q1. I think we'll stay busy in 2022, but I think you'll, you'll see things pick up a little bit. Franchisors will, will get a lot of Q4 deals off their books. And so will lawyers, so will everybody will get a lot of deals off their books in Q4 and, and things will pick back up again, I think, and move a little quicker. I wonder if we're all going to have this like period of time for like the first 10 days of January where we all just go like incognito. You know what I mean? Like, like we do the Hobbit, like slide the ring on your finger and you just kind of wander around invisible for 10 days because, because of the fatigue of getting it all complete. I don't know. Something tells me that we'll just be right back at it on January the 2nd, you know, but, but I, I guess I would just say the same thing. I mean, what we, we usually tell people six months uh, from a start of a, you know, from the time we shake hands with them to the time the deal closes. I think maybe this year it's probably been another month on top of that, maybe, maybe seven months. There have been a couple of things that have changed. I think the franchisor, you know, a couple of years ago, most franchisors went from, you know, corporations to LLCs. And when they did that, they changed the, the, their timing on the right of first refusal and transfer approval. It used to be like 30 to 45 days. And now they seem to be in the 45 to 60 days or more. So we're just seeing typically the franchisor adding another window of maybe 30 days beyond what they typically have. I guess I'd make the other comment that the franchisor is also, you know, when you have financial buyers, um, you have to remember that these financial buyers don't have training in many cases. So training becomes a material part of the discussion. If it's a new buyer that's coming in, the new buyer sometimes is going to have to negotiate a, a relationship agreement of what, in addition to the franchise agreement to, and how that's going to govern the relationship between this buyer and the franchisor. And that document contains lots of information on how much development is needed and all kinds of other things. And that takes a while to negotiate for the first time. So when you're dealing with the first time financial buyer coming into a deal, there's just always going to be probably a 30 to 60 day increase in the time. Now that may be totally worth it if they pay 5% more on a hundred million dollar price. Of course, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd wait for it, but that's a consideration that's taking, you know, that, that that's, that's becoming more prevalent because you're seeing more and more of those types of buyers buying these assets. Any comments on that? Tony, you got a comment on that? No, I think that's spot on. I think things will start simmering down here beginning January onward and we'll, we'll all kind of take a sigh of relief and maybe things will be easier to manage, right? There won't be this huge thrust behind everybody trying to get something done by uh, year end. Absolutely. Okay. Let's do the number 10. Some of this stuff is from RFDC. You know, we, so we, when we were out at RFDC last week, so, I mean, these are our views, but, but they've been informed a little bit, you know, and updated a little bit from what we heard at RFDC. So hopefully you might find this as a cliff notes to, to RFDC, you know, a little bit. So, and the next one is how are lenders looking at QSR right now? I mean, you know, what do you, what do you think? I think QSR is still attractive as ever. I think some brands have different nuances associated with them, right? I think the brands that have extreme EBITDA volatility, you're going to see lenders looking at pre-COVID numbers and making decisions off those, right? Other brands where it's been maybe a little bit more stable, I think there's been a little bit more aggressive lending or somewhat similar to what there was previously this year. And then obviously fast casual, you, you can never really get a <laughs> clear cut answer from a lot of lenders how they feel about it, but it's definitely still being figured out. But I think there's a growing appetite once performance comes back. I mean, heck, some of our fast casual clients, we've looked back at their numbers and they're just now starting to get back to where they were. So I suspect lending will pick up in lockstep with, with the amount of franchisees who are exiting those brands as well. My comment is uh, I'm continuing to hear from, from these, uh, the, the, the credit analysts and the risk management guys are getting, you know, are getting a little bit more cautious in scrutinizing the P&Ls during these de deals a little bit more since we've, since we're past the COVID wave. I just got an email. You know, here's something funny. I just got an email from somebody. He said he saw me a couple of years ago when I sang the Humpty Dance at the Taco Bell Cantina, which, of course, those of you who have seen know that I was as a high school kid. I looked a lot like uh, the guy from Digital Underground. And so I would sing the Humpty Dance every time at a party for like years. So I kind of got a good thing going with that. And he says next time he's going to have he's going to recommend to a big Applebee's franchisee that I sing uh, fancy like with the Bourbon Street Steak. So 
I don't know, man. Here's, I mean, one's a rap song from the early nineties and this is a country song from 2021. That would mean that I'm kind of an adaptable guy. I don't know, but that's funny. It's funny. Maybe I'll do it for people here. Might not even know, might not even know what that is, Rick. I think. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The guy actually (laughs) said, I'm calling Greg Flynn and you're going to see if I can get you in one of his Applebee's locations. (laughs) That's funny. That's really funny. Okay. Number 11, how are deals getting financed? Yeah, and, and particularly, I want to talk a little bit about earnouts and seller financing and alternative capital structure, because over the last four or five years, we haven't really seen much of that at all, right? Our industry has been an up 1%, down percent, one down 1% type of industry, um, typically seller financing and earnouts and kind of some of these creative ways to finance deals don't come into play as much in our space unless we have periods of extreme ups or downs or volatility or uncertainty. But we started to see that a little bit in our transactions. Um, and uh, Tony, particularly, you have a couple of assignments where you're seeing it. So why don't you speak to this question a little bit? Yeah, and, and I want to couch my response first by saying, luckily, none of these variants to financing actually stuck and were actually included in the go forward transaction, right? We've had offers with earnouts and seller financing, but I think kudos to us uh, in a biased way that we haven't had to actually accept those terms, right? I think uh, most of our clients say we fight tooth and nail to make sure that we don't have something like that for various reasons, right? There might be occasions where it makes sense, but we try above all else to avoid that where we can, right? I've had uh, a couple of transactions where that became part of the uh, overall process and something that was included in purchase price. Luckily, we were able to negotiate those away, but the fact that they've emerged so much recently to us is a clear sign of where where things might be uh, going as far as how people are interpreting deals and the level of risk. Now, I should caveat this that the brands that we've seen this in have been brands that are a little bit more troubled, right? If, if you're if you're in kind of a blue chip, well performing business that did great through COVID, you're likely not going to see this, right? And you and if you do, you probably have more leverage to select a bid or a buyer that's not going to include these type of things. Whereas some of the more troubled businesses, you're probably going to see more of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anything in particular? I mean, any particular comments, you know, like a particular deals? Yeah, I mean, I, I try to avoid being so specific with such an audience here. But, you know, in, in those cases for us, it's always really important that we understand the terms to the minute, the smallest piece of minutia, right? And in particular, guarantees are crucial where you sit in the subordination stack versus bank, landlords, et cetera, in the case of something happening. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a unique paradigm when you do seller financing or earn out, you take the seller who is supposed to ride off in the sunset with proceeds, and now they need to underwrite their buyer. And it's just a very strange dynamic. You just have to perform your own kind of quality of earnings and due diligence on the buyer as well. And, you know, we're versed in navigate that, navigating that as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well very good. Um, let's see, capital structure on franchise deals. It's kind of a, kind of a similar comment and question. Derek, do you have anything you want to add there? Capital structure, you know, of franchise deals. Maybe maybe specifically talk about how these things are being capitalized. Pick five or six deals in your head that you, you guys have been working on. Let's talk about them. How are they getting capitalized, you know, just broadly speaking? One of the one of the themes is I think we you all may have talked about it when I was frozen. Uh, sorry about that. So I don't know. You know, lenders are are underwriting EBITDA you know, a little bit tighter than they were maybe maybe six months ago. And uh, they're not all necessarily taking peak EBITDA to five and a half lease adjusted and saying, this is your debt. In that case, you're often going to get a, you know, maybe a 65 to 70% financing. Obviously depends on the deal, depends on the brand, what kind of multiple you're paying. If lenders start hedging that a little bit and hedging EBITDA and trying to give you a five and a half lease adjusted, maybe on a on an EBITDA that's a little bit lower than, than maybe where the seller actually is, well, naturally that's going to increase the equity that you need to buy that business at the same price. So generally, I think most of our deals are seeing a little bit higher infusion of equity into them. A lot of buyers are willing to do it that, that because they have balance sheets with massive amounts, millions and millions of dollars of cash that they actually want to put to work. So um, in order to win deals, if the prices stay stagnant or have gone up, naturally they end up putting more equity into these deals if they can't get additional debt. I mean, that that's one of the kind of themes that I've been seeing on most of our transactions. 
Some of the bigger ones now that we're working on, we see the real estate being financed separately through kind of a sale leaseback, kind of a wholesale sale leaseback to a REIT at closing. And then the operation side being taken down by either a consortium of lenders plus equity or one lender plus equity, depending on the size. You all probably know that you know, one lender will typically only take 35 to $40 million, roughly, no more than that, of any type of a loan before it gets too big and they start calling in other, other banks to help them. I would make the note that, that uh, these real estate rich deals, the real estate goes kind of, the, 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 the cap rates on the, on the sale leaseback market are still really strong. We don't see any of our clients really asking us or getting involved in doing single one-off sale leasebacks as, they're selling, as we're selling the operation. But oftentimes the business and operation go together. The real estate ends up being financed by the buyer through a wholesale sale leaseback to a REIT. And, the, and then the business gets gets capitalized with an infusion of debt and equity. That would be kind of something you see on bigger on, on many bigger transactions. We still see the ones where the buyers are buying the buying the business and the real estate too. But again, the financial buyers, again, their playbook is typically not always, but typically going to be eh, real estate is a, is an underutilized asset and it's easy to finance it. So, so that would be a kind of a prevalent viewpoint. Here comes a question in here. Do you? see any trends in, obtain, in timing for obtaining landlord consents to assignment of store leases and M&A deals. You guys want to take that one? I was going to say, I don't, I'm not seeing any delays with landlords like I am and some of the other, I guess, the other cogs that are in a transaction. You know, you have typical things where people are on vacation or it's held by a trust and the trust officers in Florida and good luck getting a hold of them and they're holding up the deal, et cetera. But for the most part, it's been... Uh, it's been kind of steady state. I can't say that there's been any movement positively or negatively in that regard. Yeah, I wouldn't say any trends. They're just slow like always. <laughs> so I, I don't think they're trending any slower or any faster. <laughs> and it depends on the landlord, obviously, and the type of landlord it is. But no, they're, they're as slow as they've always been. <laughs> yeah, There's always yeah. 10 to 20% of the landlords that are going to be difficult. You're going to have a couple few landlords that ended up trying to hold up the deal at the end. But otherwise, you know, the majority of landlords are, are friendly enough, <laughs> enough to work. Well, into that, We've always got that percentage that are tough. And to that point, because we always know that 10 to 20% are going to be difficult, whether you've got 100 stores or five stores, that means you either got what, like 10 to 20 or one to one or two, right? But you want to get out in front of it as soon as you can once purchase agreement is signed, right? And everyone agrees. It's just because it, it it does drag towards the end because you have several bad actors and absent people, you know, among the landlord community. So maybe that helps. Okay, so let's check this. The next one would be: Are the buyers changing? That's number the question thirteen. And I, I don't. Let's pass on that one because I kind of already mentioned that the buyers have. You know, we still see the kind of the same. We see maybe an acceleration of the family office and private equity world by making offers on these businesses now. Uh, they're not really changing as much. I think the family office structure is way more conciliatory to the franchisors, FDD, and their in the relationship agreement as a buy and hold, not necessarily a buy and sell type of a buyer. The private equity groups, you know, who are on this call just continue to realize that you know you need to get checked in with the franchisor and get approved by the franchisor because there is that stigma out there that you guys can't get deals closed in QSR because the franchisor is going to say no because your charter has you selling at five years. Okay. So you got to, you need to, you need to kind of make sure you can, you know, get over that hurdle to, but, but, you know, you know, but private equity hasn't been overly involved in the, on the franchise side until you get to the really big, until you get to the really big unit counts. But we'll see more of it. I know we will. Let's see number 14. Any opening in MA for casual and fast casual? We touched on this too. So I'll just make a quick comment and say, I don't know that I believe Derek's comment. I know he's not lying, but I don't know that I believe his comment that he that, that the lenders are saying, oh, they're open to lend to casual dining companies. Because I believe that the lenders probably were telling him anything they, they wanted to tell him to try to get some deal flow. When I ask lenders right now, I just say, I still hear negative and crickets with casual dining and fast casual. 
I do believe, like uh, Derek does, I don't know if Tony said it, but but I think Derek did, that, that we're going to see a resurgence in casual dining in 2022. I do believe that. Uh, most of these P&Ls have had like six months, seven months, eight months of performance that's been great. And they're kind of sort of getting back to 2019 levels in many cases. But I don't think we're there all the way yet. And I know all these lenders are doing these deals in QSR right now. My opinion is, regardless of what they told Derek in the hallway, they're still probably not fully committed to, to casual dining, if not committed at all. So I'm, I'm hoping and listening for better for better lending terms. And I think we're probably going to find it. I hope we find it before the end of Q1 of 2022. And once that happens, I think we're going to see a, just a litany of casual dining deals that come to the market. Fast casual, not so much. I mean, fast casual in a lot of cases was like a hundred unit franchisee of Wendy's who owned eight, whatever, mod pizzas or something like this. Just kind of less consequential in the overall marketplace. This is going to kind of happen and trickle out. Okay. You think I'm wrong about that? I will tell. I'd be interested to see which <laughs> lender was a, what you call a liar. Lenders uh, <laughs> were lying to me. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, if you ask any lender, hey, are you lending money to asbestos uh, sites? Oh, yeah, we'll take a look at that. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, they'll say anything, right? So it's just the nature of the beast, man. You know, I don't, I love them, no, you know, no matter what. Uh, is consolidation and continuing trend? Any comments on that? Heck yes. Naturally. Yeah. yeah. Oh, what, what's interesting though, is I'm seeing some of our historical clients who've been really active in some of the more mature brands are really taking an interest in some of these kind of uh, newer up and coming kind of tier two regional brands with 2000 to 3000 units. Right. Yeah. Um, especially in brands that are owned by Inspire. We're, I'm seeing and hearing a lot of that. So I think that's going to be the next wave of consolidation. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I know we kind of, it's another question down the line, but a couple of things. I'm saying we're, we're all seeing like people want to get into the coffee brands, right? I mean, these new drive-through coffee brands that you can pop up for three or 400,000 bucks, get a little quarter of an acre with a drive-through and the thing does a million dollars in sales at a 30% EBITDA, mar- you know, EBITDA margin, like, wow, right? Yeah. So that's kind of filtering through all the large franchisees right now. Several buddies of mine and clients of ours are looking at those types of startup brands that are doing that. You know, RBI just announced, obviously, that they acquired the, uh, come on, help me here, um, Firehouse Subs, Firehouse Subs out of Jacksonville, uh, good old Florida. So they, you know, so that's been a space that other than Jimmy John's with Inspire has kind of been kind of fragmented, right? By a lot of the franchisors have kind of been these tier two, 800,000 unit concepts. And then they have a lot of small franchisees within them but we're starting to see that as a consolidation. And I think that'll probably continue from our standpoint, the, the sub shops, we're just kind of, we don't do a whole lot of business with them uh, because they're usually smaller and they have smaller franchisees and no real estate and the deal sizes just aren't quite large enough for us. But, but uh, I, I, you know, they don't compete with a lot of franchisees, other businesses. I've seen a lot of our clients and friends get into the, the Jersey Mike's world too. And, you got to imagine that those sub shops will probably start consolidating here. It's going to be a difficult road to hoe though from for them because you know when you're trying to consolidate one and two unit franchisees, that's a that's a that's a patient man's game. What do you guys think? Any comments on on the RBI acquisition of Firehouse Subs, uh, number one, or coffee or anything else that you saw? It raised a little bit of an eyebrow, but on the same on the same token, there's a part of me that says, well, I mean, what else is there left to buy? where you can kind of scale your infrastructure, your franchisees and give them something else that's attractive for them to invest in, right? So if you look at almost each segment, there's not a lot left with scale to acquire at the franchise or level. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Derek, you got anything to say? No, nothing else. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, the issue is the non-compete, right? So these brands are trying to put together other brands that don't compete with them. If you're a franchisee and you're a franchisee of RBI, as an example, well, you can go into their portfolio of brands and you can buy what? You can buy burgers with Burger King. You can buy you know, fried chicken with, Pop- or, you know, with Popeyes. You can buy donuts and coffee with Tim Hortons. And now you can buy you know, sub, sub sandwiches. And so they all are kind of complementary brands. 
on the franchisor and also at the franchisee level, the, the deli sandwich or Subway sandwich type of a model is one that doesn't naturally compete with anything else that, that has, is big on the, you know, on the national stage. It becomes a natural to, to add a, a brand like that to your portfolio, which is what Inspired did too when they, when they bought uh, Jimmy John's. Okay. Anything else? So how about, um, let's talk about the franchisor for a few minutes. We just have about eight minutes left. How's it? I mean, to me, this has been a, an area of big change. Um, I'd probably say in 20-ish years of doing this, prior to this year, I'd seen, I don't know, hundreds of transactions and maybe only one were a franchisor exercise or right of first refusal. Um, on this this year, I've seen, personally, we've seen it on maybe, guys, maybe three of our transactions. And then we've also seen it on other deals in the marketplace on a couple. So that would amount to five-fold increase times 20. So a thousand, so what is it, a hundred thousand fold increase of franchisor right of first refusal over my experience in this business with it? It's it's been a pronounced change, a pronounced change. How do you expect that to to or what do you what do you think about that? What do you think about the franchise? Any, any comments? We I mean. We're not making positive or negative comments. We're just making comments. Uh, any things you see? I think generally they're just taking a little more, little bigger role in these deals, trying to guide where they go a little stronger. The Rofer is one of the tools they have to be able to do that. That's the the more straightforward tool for them to be able to to exercise their Rofer as every franchisor has. I don't know if it's something that's just happened this year or is going to continue. Well, like Rick said, until six months ago, we I've personally never been involved with a deal with a rofer attached to it. And and this year I've I've been involved with a few and heard of a couple others through the market that we weren't representing. So I think it's just the franchise or taking a little heavier role in these in these franchisee to franchisee deals generally. Yeah. I, I think it's uh maybe it's twofold. It's you know, you, I, the way I've seen it executed, one, for strategic reasons where they wanted to operate a core market. And then secondly, where there's a little bit of a, a hedge to prevent kind of a too big to fail scenario. I think some of these franchisors have seen in other brands where franchisees get so big that it becomes a systemic risk. And I think uh, in those cases, they're trying to manage away from that. Mm-hmm. So I think those that might be the thrust of what we're seeing, but we'll, we'll never really know fully what a franchisor is thinking, right? But um, it's definitely something new to us or newer to our transactions, I should say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, I've got a couple more questions we can answer. What, what about RFDC this year? Do you guys have any impressions uh, that you'd like to share with the, with the group? I actually thought it was going to be uh, less attended. Um, I was actually shocked. It was buzzing. It was really buzzing. But I I also saw a lot of brands and franchisors that were smaller in scale out there than I've more than I've seen in any other year where they're mm-hmm. basically out there understanding that there's a lot of capital and liquidity out there and they're looking for people to build de novo, which haven't really seen that. So that, that was an interesting update for me. Yeah, I, I would say the same. There were, there were quite a, a big crowd out there, bigger than I would have expected, and a lot of small franchisors. Yes who are looking for options. And, and I thought that was, I thought that was interesting too. a whole, a whole host of small franchisors. And I think, you know, for those of you who've listened that, you know, I've talked about this in the past, but, but I think we've seen a couple of big transactions this year where big franchisees have bought small franchisors. We expect to, to see that trend continue. You know, the economics of buying a small franchisor are actually quite you know, if you can if you can build a case for the health of the brand and the expansion of the brand, controlling the concept can be a very profitable thing, and not having to pay royalties and advertising. And I think that I think we're going to see that maybe as a progressive trend in our industry going forward, little by little. Um, you'll start seeing big franchisees say, "Ah, well, heck, you know, I've, I've bought enough of these in this brand and built enough of these in this other brand. Let's try a small franchisor and see what we can do." Okay. Well, I make a comment about non-franchising. I, I do, I do think we, we did see out at RFTC a couple of clients and friends talk about getting into non non-franchising or pardon me, non-restaurant franchising concepts. So, so particularly in the gym and health and wellness space, as COVID kind of gets past us, and we see those concepts kind of return back to normal, and people 
be okay sweating, you know, next to one another and having services performed and things like that. I think you're you're going to see those brands continue to push. I did see Planet Fitness just come out with a really d- d- bullish new unit development kind of projection for their their brand. So they're pretty bullish on the future here. And so I expect you'll see as we have more financial buyers in our space that they're going to cross across the restaurant aisle into the non-restaurant franchising aisle going forward. There seem to be a lot of car care brands going on, you know, as well. That's an interesting space to watch because as you know, the push for 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 electric cars is going to affect that industry greatly over the next five or six or 10 years. And so watch for that. It'll be an interesting trend. Any other comments you guys have? I guess we'll leave with this is the role of technology in the future. Everyone's wanting robots for the back of the restaurants. <laughs> as fast as they can get them because this labor problem is not is not going away is it it doesn't look like anyone's expecting wages to go down once the job market goes back to normal everything only goes up from here any comments uh, on what i just said or any final comments that either of you want to make before we finish up here it's a matter of time i mean yeah. the government wanted 15 dollar an hour wage and now they're they're getting it in a lot of places without having to do anything I mean, robots are already being tested. You've got burger flipping robots. You got wing making robots under test, and you're only going to see the the labor pressures, uh, you know, speed that process up. So, I don't. If it was a two years ago, it might have been a twenty year in the future thing. Now it's probably five. So we'll see what happens. But I think you'll see it. You'll see that be a priority over the next, you know, half a decade. Yeah, that'd be interesting too. I don't. I also think in the future that the big adage isn't just labor savings. It's actually reduced waste and cost of sales is going to be incredibly tight to manage. But uh, in the meantime, I feel like it is a ways away, but you've got brands who are embracing technology with ghost kitchens. You know, you've seen probably all over LinkedIn that inspires kind of rolling out some dark kitchens with all the brands under one roof. You've got Sonic rolling out uh, EV charging stations. So, Hey, what better than getting some free electricity and picking up a corny dog and some tots, right? So I think the the, the future is going to be earned by uh, by the brands who are really going to embrace that technology and make small investments today that could pay off in the future. Yeah, it's an exciting new world we live in, I guess. Um, you know, thank you guys for listening. I mean, and watching. Again, if you have any questions, please reach out to me afterwards. Glad to help you if if you didn't get your questions answered. Hope you found this valuable. And like I said, it'll be available on our Restaurant Boiler Room podcast on our website. And then we'll send you a copy too. And best wishes, I guess I would say, happy Thanksgiving. Can you believe it? We're at another year. I mean, I can't believe we're almost at the end of another year, but happy Thanksgiving to everyone. And good luck in the Christmas season. Good luck finishing your deals, closing your businesses out for this year. God bless you. Thank you all so much. And thanks to Derek and Tony. Thanks everybody. Everybody. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.